Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 204, Friday, August 27th. 2021 vetgurus.com the place to go to we haven't plugged the website recently mark vetgurus.com or send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com it's that simple we love getting emails from our listeners and ignoring them (laughs) usually we do reply no we love we love um our listeners and our subscribers and if you want to throw us a bone and help support the podcast you can go to vetgurus.com and click on the link that says support us and it will take you to patreon.com and you can become a patron what more could you want oh here we go again (laughs) i i hate that it's done that that it loops it these days since they did that software um and become a patron and support us and um you could be a proud patron. You could, you know, you can work, go into your work, workplace next week or tomorrow and say, I'm a patron of the Vet Gurus. And just, you feel so good inside, don't you, Mark? Oh, I think well, we know. I, I would. We know that um, that our, our other supporters do feel good as well. And uh, we should always mention um, Microchips Australia and, uh, and uh, um, Chemical Essentials, the Australian distributor of F10, and, um, and of course, Small Animal Nutrition, who bring us the wonderful range of Oxbow products. All just yes, specialised animal there. nutrition. Yes, they, we, we love our sponsors and they help support us by helping pay our bills. Um, for the software and for the hosting and the and the well not the production the production is you and me <laughs> babbling on isn't it and we, we pay ourselves exactly what we're worth zero <laughs> so another week mark another week i just can't believe how quickly the weeks fly by and uh, i i tell you what i've we were just chatting off air about a little podcast that i listened to that um you are going to have a listen to and um, a little bit about life and having a purpose in life, etc. And um, I, I've really enjoyed the second season, Mark, of Ted Lasso, uh, ah. which um, I'm thoroughly enjoying. And I know a lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon and, and are enjoying it, and I'm glad they they do. It's just a nice show, Mark. It's um, a nice show, and that's a bit of a um, that's a bit of a um, in um, or it's a fine show, um, and that's a bit of an in-joke for those who um, watch Ted Lasso. Um, it's just, yeah, he's just so nice, um, and it's a, it's good to have a, a kind person and some kind people um, during these lockdown curious times we have here, Mark, although I'm a little bit upset with some of the things that they um promote with their merchandise mark um and they have to have there's lots of unofficial merchandise for ted lasso but there's also an official merchandise store which i think is run by warner brothers because they own the ip for it um and one one is um be a goldfish mark it's one of the sayings um from the first season um because they had a horrible loss and ted lasso said to his players be a goldfish um, saying that goldfish only have a you know memory of two seconds, the old thing that's been disproved by some of our 
um, friends who are fish vets, haven't they, Mark? And that we know fish have a decent memory and it doesn't last for a couple of seconds. So um, that's the only... So I've, I've ordered the big old fish um, T-shirt, <laughs> having said all that. Um, yeah, so I'm enjoying Ted Lasso, Mark. Um, and um, the other interesting thing... Um, it's a good segue to this. Is I had an email from one of our one of our listeners, Mark, saying, "Where's our merchandise?" Um, ah. and mentioning that there's some other podcasters that have merchandise, including the field of veterinary medicine that we um, we provide um, a podcast for. And and I basically said, "Oh, we can't be bothered," <laughs> which is the truth. Um, so my question to our subscribers mark or listeners is would you like some merchandise from the vet gurus and if so we may sort out something probably something with our our little turtle logo on it mark i think would be good um so we'll see if we get any replies or any interest with that but um yeah it was an interesting um conversation mark where is our merchandise we, we really are not it's not our nature to be very, very efficient with um, marketing and promotion, is it, Brendan? No, we're um, we're not into that. Um, we're just hopeless at it, as I mentioned, um, and we're just in it to have a bit of a chat and a bit of a catch up every week, and and hopefully convey a little bit of fun and some very silly jokes, and also perhaps a little bit of information, especially about unusual pets and wildlife, and. Um, I think we we cover at least one of them every week, don't we? Um, those topics. So sometimes we we manage to hit more than one, which is um, a bit of an exception. But yeah, so that's our aim, Mark. Um, so how have you been? What have you been up to? Travelling, Brendan. I managed to get out of New South Wales before it was locked down, and I'm travelling around uh, Queensland. Traveling. Yes, still travelling. I'm in uh, central Queensland. Kate and I just spent a few days at uh, Carnarvon Gorge, wonderful place. And now we're at um, uh, Lake Nooga Nooga remote campsite. Um, Nooga Nooga. I heard you the first time, Mark. You don't need to repeat yourself. And you did, I saw some amazing photos. You, your lovely wife sent me a couple of pics while we were chatting before we started recording, and gee, it looks spectacular there. It really is. Um, it, apparently, um, Steve Parrish, the famous wildlife photographer who used to do quite a few calendars and things, um, um, took quite a few photographs up this way and, and uh, turned them into commercial. You know, he marketed it much better at the time than you and I do. Um, but it's it's a, a beautiful location. So, yeah. Um, and I was, any, I was, you know, I was saying to you that attending the remote camp, uh, the remote campsite, I thought we might not have a connection, but here I'm shout out to Telstra. I don't often have good things to say, but... Um, the reception here and the little mobile uh, um, sound booth um, is is allowing me to contribute to the podcast this week. That's amazing, isn't it? The the Vet Guru Studio in the middle of Outback Queensland, Australia, uh, and um, at a campsite. And here we are recording. Yeah, it is fantastic. Very good, Mark. And we better kick on before the um, Wi-Fi <laughs> drops out. Dies have, after having said that. Um, so, yeah, maybe I think you've got the first news story, haven't you? 
I do indeed. My news story um, is about the race against time to name every Australian species within the next 25 years. Now, when... Uh, Taxonomy is a little bit of a side interest of mine. I am fascinated by nomenclature and I want to know the names of things. I want to understand how they fit in. So this title struck me as a bit of a surprise because I thought that that it's a never-ending thing, like you constantly are going to get new revisions, new divisions, new conglomerations and species are never going to be completely done. But... More fool me, Brendan, because Kevin Thiel, the Director of Taxonomy Australia at the Australian Academy of Science, is launching a mission to catalogue every species within 25 years. This has been driven by recent research um, that's been undertaken by the Academy of Science and Deloitte Australia, which shows that for every dollar spent on uncovering the, these name, unnamed species, um, these return up to $35 to the national accounts. These significant dividends, um, they are a reflection of the value that's held within Australia's unique biodiversity, the Deloitte report said. Um, yeah, I, 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 it genuinely surprises me, me that the benefit will flow from... I don't, I'm not exactly certain of how biodiversity um, feeds back into economic growth, but new drugs and, um, and uh, some agricultural research and development. Um, but yeah. Perhaps tourism, ecotourism, I suppose, as well. Yeah. Um, but is it that important, Mark, to try and get it done in a specific time frame? Or is it just a shout out saying. There's a hell of a lot of species out there we still don't know exist and let's crack on and try and identify some of them. I do think this age of social media and, you know, grabbing the headline and um, clickbait, I think it would be a much harder call to make going, yes, we're going to continue to name new species forever and uh, make that a clickbait. Though setting a deadline definitely raised my eyebrows um, and, um, yeah, I know, I know a, a person that you've had the pleasure of meeting, Dr. Jane Melville at uh, Museums Vic. Museums Vic. Uh, she's leading a team of 30 uh, herp experts who are involved in um, uh, this process with reptiles in Australia. And, you know, every couple of months there's a, a paper describing new species of reptiles. I have a... Um, an old Eric Worrell's Reptiles of Australia, and I think there's like, I don't know, 295 species. And now I th I'm going from memory here, but I think there's over 800 or something. Um, and I think the number is just going to grow. Yes, and I think they're realising that a lot of the species that were named in the past, are, um, they can break down in, into subspecies or, or different species, I think, for one spe just one species, Mark. It is one of those jobs, isn't it, ta taxonomist, that it's sort of never-ending, and I think it's you'd either hate it or love it, I think, wouldn't you? Because you know there's, there's no particular end in sight, but that's probably the thrill of the, thrill of the chase. It, it, um, I think it suits a certain personality, doesn't it? It's like a dermatologist, Mark. 
Uh, a good mate of mine. This is this, you'll see how this is related. A good oh, mate so of I'm mine. Waiting, I'm waiting for the. A good mate of mine. I went through uni with. He decided to become a dermatologist because he thought I need to choose something that I don't have to do after hours. And um, my patients keep coming back to me because they never get better. Um, so I, he he became a dermatologist. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so it's never ending. You see, never ending. Um, and you've got a constant supply of um, patients because you never fix them, Mark. I do think that taxonomies changed from, you know, the Charles Darwin era with uh, people shooting out into remote places and picking up things that have never been seen before. Stick, now, Sticking um, moths <laughs> on, pins. on pins. Whereas now I think it's more about, you know, collecting samples and running them through uh, DNA analyses and um, doing those trees to demonstrate how related things are um, and, and you know, as a consequence, species that on the surface look similar um, or even the same, all of a sudden you do the DNA and it turns out they're not very related at all. Yes. Yes, it's a... Um Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to talk about, Brendan? I'm going to jump into my – well, one's a very short one, and it's about snout bubbles, Mark, snout <laughs> bubbles, um, and how some lizards have a newfound superpower, according to the article, where they have – they can breathe underwater because they trap air in bubbles on their snouts, and they've been seen to actively breathe in and out through these bubbles in the streams or the rivers that they've been found, Mark. These are knolls in Canada, I think, um, and quite fascinating, some amazing pictures in this article too. And I think some of them they discovered can hold their breath or, or breathe through these snout bubbles up to 18 minutes, Mark, was the longest, and they are getting a bit worried about that one. They thought it was God. And there's even a picture of the researchers, um, Chris and James, but their brothers, um, preparing to insert an oxygen probe into a lizard un underwater snout bubble. Mark, I tell you what, it have to be a pretty damn small probe. It doesn't look that small to me in the picture. I don't know whether you can see it in in the I article. Have, I've there, got Mark. a picture. Yep. Yeah, um, because they're they're not big animals, are they? These little um, lizards, and um, you need a pretty small probe to do that. But yeah, fascinating. They even um, they're even thinking that perhaps as the oxygen levels in the bubble drop and CO2 levels rise, the bubble may rebalance the levels by shedding carbon dioxide into the water and uptake, uptake in dissolved oxygen. Well, it's a theory that they have. I don't think they've proven that yet. Um, but fascinating, Mark, and, and they, um, they think that there are so many different types of lizards, there's a good chance that others do it too and that we just haven't seen it um and i suppose that the 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 thing that really um piqued me about this one mark was that um it was um he was inspired to investigate this by a story of one of his professors when he was a student at university mark um and evolutionary biologist um, released a lizard back into the stream and he noticed something odd that as the as a lizard clung to the rocky bottom it exhaled an air bubble on its snout and he must have mentioned it in his in his lectures and um, this researcher um, revisited this and, and discovered these snout bubbles mark so there you go snout bubbles in lizards that's my article isn't it amazing how they um they 
you know, little observations like that then can lead to a whole field of research, which, you know, we'll have people now looking at other species that spend time in the water and see if they uh, have snout bubbles. Yes. Curious minds, Mark. That's what we need. Curious minds. (laughs) Well, we've got a really short one for our main topic this week. Having said that, we'll probably talk for half an hour (laughs) on this. I've mozzed myself there. Um, And it's a topic you've suggested, Mark, and I am very curious, speaking of curious minds, of why you selected this one. And the main topic is euthanasia of ducks. So why did we select this, Mark? Well, you you know I have a bit of a scattergun approach to suggesting topics, just often repeating ones that we've done before, or I just fire out ideas that jump into my head. Um, And I thought uh, euthanasia of ducks was a, a, uh, um, a little bit of a, like it, it, has some general principles um, that I think we can apply more widely. So I think it's a bit of a um, iconic, central, when we talk about euthanasia, it provides us with lots of examples of the things that we need to talk about. The other thing I think, and one of the reasons I think we should, and I know in our podcast we have touched on euthanasia a number of times, um, is that it is, I reckon, one of the... Things that veterinarians, and particularly veterinarians who deal with unusual and exotic and avian pets, um, it's taken for granted that we're just going to be able to do it, and it's a simple procedure. Um, but um, but as I will highlight in a minute, there are um, there are uh, n- it's never guaranteed easy none of this is easy and it's uh um you know i congratulate all veterinarians on the the skills they demonstrate to be able to do this sort of stuff and um do it in such a way that they treat the sensitivities of the owners involved appropriately yes and if we as we have mentioned before it's often you know, the end-of-life story that the clients will remember, Mark. So if it's a, a good euthanasia or a gentle euthanasia, then they'll often remember that, won't they? Uh, if it's a bad euthanasia, they may not ever come back to your clinic regard, regard, regardless of how well you've done with looking after that animal and, and keeping its um, quality of life um, going for, for many years and, and um, enhancing its... Um, um, lifespan, Mark. Um, if things go bad at the end, there um, you may have lost them forever. What you say is true. There's no doubt that um, those sort of bookend events—the first few times they show up with an animal, and the last time they show up—that um, they really have an influence on how people remember the way that you treated their animal. And uh, and you said they they'll often remember those things they'll never forget a bad euthanasia um it's it's something um, that can't be avoided it's going to happen in every veterinary career uh, but if you can take steps to limit the chances it'll be better for you and it's certainly a, something that a lot of veterinarians struggle with um how do i euthanize this x species x um and it's a really stressful sort of event for everybody um but if you approach it logically and you think about the concepts that we've spoken before about in some of our other um podcast episodes and we've had a couple just on euthanasia um not only is it a gentle euthanasia and 
it's something that you don't need to stress about, isn't it, Mark? But having said that, euthanasia of ducks, yeah, there's a few important things we need to remember about ending the life of a duck, Mark, and ending it gently um, because it's it can be a challenge if you just think about it like you would if you were considering euthanizing, euthanizing a dog or a cat. Exactly right. And and in general, like the general principles um, that we've talked about before, you know, the, the uh, pre-medications that often we'll consider uh, um, complete uh, an anesthesia, general anesthesia before we administer the euthanasia. Um, it's very important to have that plan. There's no one single way to do it. And, you know, uh, every person that does this well follows those general principles that they um, will um, uh, set the scene um, they'll pre-medicate the animal they'll set the situation so they can provide the intravenous injection or um, whichever way they deliver the euthanasia solution um, they'll do it in such a way that um, that it's not painful um, and they'll do it in the context of allowing the people to you know, do, do whatever's right to express their grief. Absolutely. And that's a key point there, Mark. Um, and it's that two-step process, sedate or anaesthetise the animal first before you euthanise it. And for those listeners who haven't heard it, of us chat about this previously, it's the importance of not just injecting the animal, intra-animal, um, with the euthanasia solution because... They are all very alkaline and it hurts, Mark. It hurts like hell um, in order to inject something like that into the animal. Um, and the difference is in dogs and cats, we're going directly into a vein, hopefully, and we're avoiding that um, that painful process of just injecting it. And, you know, in my mind, I regard it as malpractice if anybody just injects the animal into the abdominal cavity um, and that includes and the unfortunate thing there and, and I'm sure you'll agree Mark is that we, there's still a large number of vets um, who, who still do the process of just grabbing that you know that stray cat or wildlife um, that's been brought into the clinic that has some horrific injury and they just decide to inject the animal um, with the euthanasia solution um, and they're not following the process of sedating or providing some pain relief or anaesthetic um, before they give the solution. And it's, you know, I do regard it as malpractice and, and it would be a horrible way to, to die. I think I, the difficult thing, I think, when I've had discussions with people who do um, the, you know, intra-abdominal, intra um, intra peritoneal intrasalomic injection is that the animals will often uh, not be overly reactive um, but that sort of pain that um, uh, discomfort from the lining of the peritoneum isn't the sort of thing that necessarily will cause particularly exotic animals to scream out in discomfort um, but it, as you said it's an extremely alkaline solution and uh, and all steps should be taken to avoid it uh, just being injected into those uh, surfaces where they're gonna it is gonna hurt and the advantage is doing it the correct way it's simple it's cheap and 
it doesn't take a great deal of time to go that added step of sedating or anaesthetizing the animal. So let's get back to the main topic, Mark. So you, um, let's walk through, <laughs> or you can walk through the euthanasia process in a duck that's presented that has some um, terminal um, illness there or, or a problem that we can't fix. Well, let me quickly, but um, I know you're trying to be punchy, but let me preface it by saying what we would normally do with most birds um, is that we would anaesthetize them with isoflurane, give them just two or three minutes of gas, have them deeply anaesthetized at 5% um, and uh, then gain access to one of the the um, superficial veins and deliver an overdose of euthanasia solution. Um, we probably wouldn't do that with chickens and we'll talk about that another time. But the problem with ducks, the problem with ducks, one of the many problems with ducks is that they're diving animals and uh, the, the water birds have um, that diving reflex. So once they um, become a little bit anoxic, they stop breathing. And so it's very hard to maintain a good level of anesthesia just using isoflurane. Um, and so that's the big distinction. Um, the other thing that, uh, so generally speaking, we're not trying to mask them down and, and uh, knock them out with isoflurane. We're given, what I would generally do is um, probably give them a little bit of butorphanol to um, settle them down, then some intramuscular alfaxan um, and uh, once they're deeply sedated we generally can gain access uh, to the veins in the uh, tibiotarsal region um, place a catheter um, and uh, and let the duck sit comfortably um, with its head resting in a basket of or uh, some form of cushioned uh, arrangement. Let the owners sit next to it while we remotely deliver the euthanasia solution intravenously. Yes. And what's the typical reaction of those clients, Mark, when you go through this process? Um, there's a couple of things that uh, is always mentioning about the interaction with the clients. The clients really appreciate um, the fact that, um, you know, the medicalization um, is sort of a step removed, that you're not mucking around with a needle in proximity to the animal. So that's a, a big plus for them. They can be close to the animal while you're, um, you know, three feet away mucking around with the um with the giving set to deliver the euthanasia solution. And generally, um, my experience with ducks in this circumstance is that it's a very peaceful, um, uh, they, they, there's no flapping, they just um, lower their heads slowly, close their eyes and stop breathing. And, and that's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, people, the peacefulness people really value. I think one of the most important things, if I had to talk to a uh, recent graduate about um, the way to handle euthanasia is one of the most important things is that um, it's good to communicate really well and to be reasonably clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it. A lot of the, the upset um, comes from... Uh, people not understanding why things have happened. Um, and so talking about what you're going to do, about the risks that it doesn't go exactly as you expect, um, if you do that before the event, 
um, it's much easier to have people on side than it is trying to do it after the event when it looks like you know you're covering your ass rather than it being a genuine risk. Yes, and I think it's a great point, Mark, in that um, doing all those you know paying, getting the client to pay the pay the bill, um, walking them through the whole process, giving them some care sheets and some. Um, um, you know, dealing with grief notes, etc., um, well before the actual day um, that the animal needs euthanizing. And, and I know we've spoken about this um, previously. And sure, some of them are, 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 um, are not are not going to be predictable that we're getting close to having to put that duck or that whatever animal down um, and they'll be, you know, um, come in as an emergency that needs a euthanasia. But so many of them aren't where you can go through that whole process with them and send them home with the with the little um, brochure on options for cremation, etc. Um, and and it just makes things a lot easier for everybody um, because no matter how, how well you do it, it's still an emotional time, isn't it, um, with the actual euthanasia and um, then trying to then get in, asking the client to make decisions about um, burial, et cetera, um, or cremation and, and paying the bill, et cetera, at the time is makes it um, a lot more difficult for everybody all around. Uh, look, it's it, what you say is so true, Brendan. It tends to be if there are mistakes, if there are um, confounding issues, they tend to happen because um, the decisions were made after the event with those emotions running raw, raw rushed than before. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. Um, okay. Well, any final final comments about euthanasia of ducks, Mark? Um, do you have many clients who where you've euthanized their duck that go that extra step and have them um, cremated or, or special, you know, um, urns and ashes, etc. back? Definitely. That's one of the things that, um, like, uh, what's the, I'm trying to find the right words to describe this without sounding uh, patronising, but I, I suppose I always thought that, um, you know, that, that particular species might not necessarily uh, have the same emotional impact. Uh, you know, a, a, a companion animal, a dog that's been with you for 18 years or whatever, um, uh, I, I've often thought that maybe some of the exotic animals that we have would not necessarily form the same um, emotional relationship Bond, with yeah. the yeah, but that's not true. As you and I have learnt over the years, um, uh, you can't predict what what people are going to feel about those animals, um, and very often um, the the emotional bond between a client and a rabbit or a duck or a budgerigar um, can't be belittled. And I think it's very important to offer all the options um, and even some species specific ones like um, uh, we found uh, uh, imprints in a little, um, we were talking about clay before, but in a little plaster frame, um, imprints of the foot, for example, those mementos mean quite a lot to people and uh, and it's always worth, you know, as you said, planning ahead, making sure you know what they want. Um, may, if it's going to be a cremation, and many of them do, um, getting that all set up in advance. Yes, and 
they don't cost anything too, you know, um, f- f- from a clinic perspective of doing those things like the the footprints and, and a little bit of fur that was clipped off the animal to, um, to take home in a Ziploc bag. And I must admit that my, my nurses convinced me to do that um, a few years ago and um, we do it for most of the most of the euthanasias now and, and almost invariably every client, um, you know, really appreciates um, that little extra step mark and, and sympathy cards is the other thing that we we do for most of these. We'll send them out a little sympathy card, which are handmade cards based on whatever species that was euthanized and we send that out, you know, a couple of days after um, the euthanasia, euthanasia. Yeah. It's just we're doing the same things, Brendan. Exactly the same things, and um, and but I think that um, they're not widely done um, in the general veterinary community for all these exotic species, and it does set you apart as a practice that that understands the relationship to some of the unusual species we keep as pets, um, and um, and anything that sets you apart is a good thing. Yes. Good stuff. Well, Mr. Outro's back, Mark. So we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.